Well, it's uh, the new year, and we're going back to 1 Peter. Why go back to 1 Peter? Well, first of all, because it is the Word of God. And then, secondly, my mother told me that I should always finish whatever I started. (laughs) Thirdly, more importantly, 1 Peter has a lot to say to us about living in the real world. So this is living in the real world part two. Let's open 1 Peter to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Why would these words be so important for the people that Peter was writing to? Well, he's writing to the church in the first century. It's about 60 AD. And he's writing to people that have come to faith in Jesus in the Roman provinces that are now a part of Turkey. This isn't a time of systematic, widespread persecution. But those that follow Jesus, they suffer from religious discrimination, injustice. There are psychological, social, and economic consequences if you are a follower of Jesus. They've come to faith in Jesus because the religions that they were a part of in the past, Greek religions, Roman religions, those religions just haven't satisfied. They haven't answered their deepest questions. They, those religions just haven't filled their lives with meaning. And they met Jesus. They surrendered to him. They were born to a living hope. But even though they have new life in Jesus, they often find that life is difficult. They are wronged. They find themselves on the margins in society. They've been born to a living hope. They've been born into the family of God. Sometimes that very family disappoints them. So they have questions. Questions like these. How do we respond when we suffer evil and injustice at the hands of family, church members, neighbors, work colleagues, the government? If we believe that we've been wronged, if we're being threatened, is there a way to respond that is within God's approval? I have a button on my desk. I have a bigger and more powerful button on my desk. I couldn't resist that. Do we just sit back and passively wait for God's justice? Or is there some positive action that we can take? See, these questions that the disciples of the first century would have had, these questions are your questions and my questions as well when we suffer evil and injustice. How are we to respond? 
in verse 8, Peter begins by talking about Christian character, the character of blessing. The main point of the message is this. Whether we are experiencing favorable or adverse circumstances, the posture of a disciple is one of blessing. And this message is going to explore what that means. The posture of a disciple is one of blessing others. Let's reread verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter writes, finally, right in the middle of his letter, he's like a preacher that's just going to go on and on and on. No, that's not what it means. Finally here, it's just introducing a general statement that he's going to make about Christian character. What kind of character is needed in a world where we are are suffering difficulty? Where we are suffering injustice or evil? What kind of character will enable us to live a life of blessing? It's interesting the way that he structures this verse. He uses something that's called a chiastic structure. And so he talks about one virtue, then a second, then a third. The third is actually at the heart of what he's saying. It's the most important virtue. And then he talks about a fourth and a fifth. The first virtue and the fifth are connected. They belong to each other. The second and the fourth are connected. They belong to each other. And the third, right at the center, is the most important. So the first and the last are unity of mind and a humble mind. They belong together. Unity of mind is like-mindedness. Listen to the way that Paul describes it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So, if we have the mind of Jesus, we are united in our faith in Jesus. We have one God, the Father, one Savior, Jesus, one faith in Him, one Spirit that unites us. We are grounded in the Scriptures together. So if we are living that reality, division and dissension is unthinkable. Like-mindedness, according to Edmund Clowney, like-mindedness is precisely willingness to submit ourselves to others for Christ's sake that undercuts the misunderstandings and hostilities that can divide the Christian community. That willingness flows from the love of Christ. So our like-mindedness at Willingdon unites men and women, people of different ethnicities, different nationalities, We're united as a family of faith to know Jesus personally and to carry on his ministry together. There's a willingness to conform our aspirations, our goals, our expectations to God's teaching, clear teaching through scripture, and the larger purposes that Christ has set out for the church. It's not that we all hold to the same opinion. We don't always think alike about absolutely everything. No, we have our differences, but we're actually willing to consider the concerns of others. We listen. We try to see life from the point of view of the other. To be like-minded, of course, we need to have a humble mind. Listen to the way that Paul describes a humble mind. Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, in the, in the highly competitive, the highly stratified world of Greco-Roman society, that would have been an absurdity. Nonsensical. It was only the people of low social status that would even be expected to demonstrate some humility because they were unable to defend themselves. They were weak. If you had any strength at all, you would defend yourself. There was no value placed on humility. Paul's teaching and Peter's reflects that of Jesus. You see, a disciple of Jesus can consider others more important than himself or herself because a disciple understands who God is and who they are in Jesus. That's where they're grounded. We'll come back to that. So the first character trait of blessing is a willingness to lay down one's rights for the oneness of the church. A willingness to lay down one's rights for the oneness of the church. I actually see this happening quite often as elders and pastors and leaders and members are willing to lay down their opinion or their agenda or their initiative for the good of the whole. In the history of the church, on some occasions the church has divided because of some really important theological truth. There's a division because of theological compromise. That happens. But more often than not, it happens because of pride. Listen to what John Calvin says about theological controversy. Pride or self-glorification is the cause and starting point of all controversies. When each person, claiming for himself more than he is entitled to have, is eager to have others in his power. Ambition has been and still is the mother of all errors. So, if we are to walk united in harmony, the first character trait is a willingness to lay down one's rights for the oneness of the church. Then, the second and fourth virtues are sympathy and a tender heart. They're connected. Uh, Sympathy is, what, what it means is you're willing to feel what the other is feeling. You're willing to enter into the pain, the joys, the sorrows of the other. A tender heart, it's like empathy. It's a heart full of deep-seated compassion. We have a picture of this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Jesus, he sees the crowds as harassed and helpless, and he feels compassion. The word means that it twists his stomach. He feels it deep within himself. He feels the desperation of the people in front of him. Peter, as he talks to the disciples that are living in the Roman provinces of what today is Turkey, he says that they need to exercise the virtue of sympathy, of a tender heart. Why? Because these disciples, they've come out of other faiths. They often find themselves on the margins in society. If the church is not family for them, who will be? Many of them rejected by their own families. So the second character trait of blessing is a willingness to enter into and feel the needs, joys, and sorrows of others. Even if they aren't a part of your family or ethnic group. There's a really good example in Luke chapter 10. The the Samaritan, he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he sees a Jew fallen at the side of the road. 
As a Samaritan, he wouldn't be held accountable for the welfare of that Jew, but he decides to enter into the pain of that Jew and help him at his own expense. He was a neighbor to the Jew. It's an example of compassion, of a tender heart, of sympathy. Then the third character virtue, brotherly love, that is the most important of all virtues. It's at the center of what Peter writes in verse 8. Now, if you've lived in the West for a while, love for us in society as a whole kind of means this. Well, in my emotional attachment to that other person, I'm kind of moving beyond liking, and I think it's now called love. That is not what Peter is talking about. That's not what Jesus talked about when he talked about love. Peter here is talking about something much more profound. The third character trait of blessing is a willingness to love others selflessly and sacrificially. Love, it's it's the hallmark of new life in Jesus. To be born again means that we're born to a living hope in Jesus and being born to a living hope, we're born into a new family. We love the family of God. That's what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. That's what we celebrate at baptism. Listen to 1 John 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So if we don't love, we just haven't experienced new life in Jesus. Now, Again, if we've lived in the West for a while, then what's most important is what's important to us, our own needs. Our own needs trump everything. So if I'm in a relationship, part of a family, a community, a church, and my needs aren't being met by the relationship or by the community, I have every right to move on because what is most important is my needs. That's the self-talking. That's not Jesus. That's not what we've been called to. Love is the essence of new life in Jesus, and we never live our faith in isolation. We're called to Jesus to love him. He's our first love, and we're called to love one another. Notice that all three character traits are actually acts of the will, a willingness to lay down one's rights for the oneness of the church, a willingness to enter into and feel the needs, joys, and sorrows of others, and a willingness to love others selflessly and sacrificially. So Peter talks about the character of blessing, and then he follows that with some commands of blessing. Verses 9 through 11. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. When he says, don't return reviling for reviling, insult for insult, the essence of the language is don't pay back abuse for abuse. You see, the disciples that Peter's writing to, they're on the receiving end of unjust 
criticism. They're on the receiving end of abusive language. And in first century society, it was an honor-shame society. And so what was expected of you when you were insulted, when someone did evil to you, then you would respond with slander. You would threaten those people. You would defame their character. You would do all that you could to bring them down. That's what comes naturally. Peter urges the disciples that he's running to to guard their tongues, to avoid deceit. The word deceit is to to bait. And so if you've been wronged, don't insult, don't slander, don't draw others in to gossip. What did Jesus do when he was reviled? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, when, when, when reviled, he did not revile in return. When the abuse was heaped up on Jesus, when the Jewish council slandered him, when the Roman guards ridiculed him, when the thief crucified beside him despised him, he did not respond in kind. He did not respond with abusive language. He didn't threaten divine vengeance on them. He broke that cycle of escalating conflict by not retaliating. He followed his own teaching, Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you, these are the words of Jesus, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So we are to love, not to retaliate. Now here's a word of caution. I notice in my own heart sometimes... I don't retaliate, but what I do is I sit there and clench my teeth and just seethe. So it's what's called passive-aggressive behavior. So insulting, slandering, well, that would be beneath me, but I just sit there and stew. Clench my teeth. Passive hostility. Just waiting for that person to come down. (laughs) Waiting for justice to finally be done. Even maybe waiting for an opportunity where I might injure that person in some way. Well, the Christian response of non-retaliation, that in and of itself would have been a huge surprise in first century Greco-Roman society, but Jesus was actually calling the disciples to much more, and he calls, calls us too much more. Verse 9, but on the contrary, bless. What? Again, if you're like me and you've just been hurt by somebody, someone has offended you and the Lord says, bless that person. It's like, did I hear you correctly, Jesus? You actually want me to bless that person after what they did to me? Bless who? Who would the readers of 1 Peter, those first readers, who would they have struggled to bless? Well, government leaders that were treating them unjustly. Hard to pray for those people. Uh, Trade guilds that had excluded them. Families that were leaving them on the margins. Members of the churches that had betrayed them before government authorities. Spouses that dishonored them. Who do we have a hard time blessing? Well, do you find it easy to pray for government leaders that misrepresent the church? Do we find it easy to pray for employers that mistreat us, that dishonor us? Teachers or fellow students that ridicule our faith? Families that belittle us? Church members that betray us? 
Peter tells the disciples not only refrain from defending their own honor, but he calls them to respond to evil and insult with blessing. So what does it mean to bless? When we bless, does it mean that we approve of what's been done? To bless means to invoke God's favor on someone. That's the clear command. To invoke God's favor, his grace on those who have hurt you and me. And that's not natural, is it? We're to ask God to shower his goodness upon those who have conferred injury upon us. We are to intercede for those who do evil. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That means glorify God on the day of Christ's return. Remember the example of Stephen. Stephen is in Jerusalem. He's proclaiming the good news, and he's being stoned by fellow Jews. As he's being stoned, he prays for his persecutors. Among those supporting his stoning is Saul. That's what the scriptures say. He stood there in support. That happens in chapter 7 of Acts. In chapter 9, Paul is on his way to Damascus, and the Lord appears to him. He converts. I believe his conversion, in part, is an answer to the prayer of Stephen. Karen Jobes writes, Those who are able not to simply clench their teeth and remain silent, but to maintain an inner attitude that allows one to pray sincerely for the well-being of one's adversaries are truly a witness to the life-changing power of a new identity in Christ. So we are to bless, we are to invoke God's favor on others, not legalistically, but because we really believe in the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ. We've experienced that in our own lives, and we believe it can happen in the lives of those who hurt us. What does it look like? Here's a true story from Afghanistan. A, a Christian soldier was uh, staying in a, in a barracks uh, at night, he would take out his Bible, read his Bible, pray. The soldier across the aisle would hurl insults at him, ridicule him. One night as he opened his Bible to, to read it and to pray, some muddy combat boots were thrown in his direction. The next morning, the angry soldier found those boots at his bedside, cleaned, polished, ready for inspection. Now, a number of soldiers from that unit came to faith in Jesus because they saw this Christian soldier returning blessing when he was being reviled, when he was being insulted. If you're here this morning, you're probably not in the military, but you may find muddy combat boots being hurled in your direction. Not literally, but sometimes verbally insults, mean things being said, people reviling you, ridiculing you, slandering you. It may happen at home. It may happen in the workplace. It may happen at school. It may happen in your neighborhood. This happens in life. And the question is, how do we respond when these real things happen to us? 
The scriptures call us to bless. Why? Peter writes, to this you were called. This is what it means to follow Jesus. People that follow Jesus, they extend grace to those who don't deserve it because they've experienced grace. They bless those who don't deserve it because they've been blessed. God's calling on our lives determines our reaction, not how others treat us. Peter writes, bless that you may obtain a blessing. The word blessing there is inheritance. So I I believe this means two things. First of all, blessed to obtain a blessing, he's talking about that eternal blessing, that eternal inheritance. If you have given your life to Jesus, you've been born to a living hope, you're guarded by God's power, and that eternal inheritance in heaven, it is there secure, unfading, undefiled, as he writes in chapter one. You live in light of that blessing. And then secondly, if you bless now, you experience blessing now. You experience the reality of your salvation. As you bless others, you experience what it means to be forgiven of your sin. You'll go deeper in your understanding of what it means to have your, a new identity in Jesus. You go deeper in your understanding of the grace of God over your life. You experience the authority that is yours in Jesus over the evil one. You experience the power to not sin that is yours in Jesus. In deeper measure, you experience the peace of God in your life. You receive healing, so you bless to obtain a blessing. And then in verse 10, Peter talks about loving life and seeing good days. He's quoting from Psalm 34. What does it mean to see a good day? If you watch TV, I'm sure you don't, but if you do, you may see a beer commercial. I know you close your eyes when it comes on, but anyways, you may see a beer commercial, and uh, you know, there's a bunch of people at a fishing lodge, and the sun is setting, and they're drinking beer, and somebody says, it doesn't get any better than this. Really? What do you do then with, you know, Paul and Silas in prison, they've been beaten, they're bleeding, feet in stocks, and they're singing hymns, singing psalms. That's a good day. The point is, whether life is difficult or not, we live our whole existence under the favor of God, and that enables us to obey a third command. Pursue peace with those who have hurt you. Seek peace and pursue it. That word pursue is to hunt for peace, work for peace. It reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What does it mean to pursue peace? Well, you don't respond to abuse with more abuse. You decide to forgive. You extend grace to people, what they don't deserve. You seek to be reconciled with them. Whether you're offended or whether you're the offender. I was in Southeast Asia a number of years ago, and I'd been called in to work for reconciliation between some leaders. I wasn't at the center of the conflict, but I was certainly enmeshed in it. And so we sat there for two days doing something called reflective listening. Listening, repeating, clarifying, owning our stuff, forgiving each other. After two days, I was so tired. I was exhausted. 
But those were such good days. Why? Because our relationships were at stake. Kingdom work was at stake. And as we worked through our stuff, our trust in one another went way deeper. Our commitment to what God was doing in that part of the world went way deeper. Our relationships were at stake. Kingdom work was at stake. And we were able to move on. Those were great days. I was really tired, but they were great days. But what if you pursue peace, you actually hunt for peace, and the others that are a part of that conflict situation don't want peace? I've experienced that too. I remember a moment in South America where I happened to be at the center of the conflict. I didn't want to be, but there I was. And no matter how much I repented, no matter how much I owned my stuff, no matter how much I prayed, forgave, reconciliation didn't happen. It still hasn't happened. And maybe that's your experience. You're you're pursuing peace. You're seeking it, but... Others involved in the conflict, they just seem intent on defending their own position, their own righteousness. Some people, from your perspective at least, they just want to wade in deceit. They just don't want to hear the truth or own it. What do you do then? It's hard. Maybe that's your experience in your family. Or again, it's in the workplace. You've tried hard to reconcile. But it's just not there. Well, in these moments, we need to bless and throw ourselves on God. We need to know something about the certainty of blessing. Chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So first of all, the certainty of blessing. God sees you and he hears you. God sees you. Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. In the midst of your pain, he is present. He is listening to your cries. He is hearing your prayers. And then secondly, God is against the evildoer. Again, Peter, he quotes Psalm 34, and he talks about God turning his face from the evildoer. We never want that to happen to us, for God to turn his face from us. That's why we don't respond to insult with insult, to evil with evil. We don't want to be found among evil doers. God is against the evil doer. If you seek peace and pursue it, surrender yourself to Jesus. Peter says, you will be blessed. God will bless you. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You will live under God's favor. You will inherit the kingdom of heaven. 1 Peter 5.10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, 
and steadfast. God himself will restore you. So what does it look like to live a blessed life? Well, according to the scriptures, a blessed life is a life where you know God, your father, your good, good father. You know Jesus as your friend. You know the Holy Spirit, the spirit that abides within you. You walk at peace with God. You experience God's peace day by day. You understand that inexpressible joy that Peter talks about no matter what the circumstances are. You extend grace to others because you have received so much. Because of the hope that is yours in Jesus, you bless. A number of months ago, the Lord asked me to make a list of blessing. And I'd invite you to make a commitment to live this way in 2018, to write down your list of blessings. As I prayed about that, and I was reminded of those that I should bless, forgive and bless, I was amazed at how long the list was. If you want to get on my list, just offend me. You... <laughs> Actually, there's a much easier way to get on the list, so please, just give me your name. Be happy to pray. But you know, sometimes it's really hard. You look at that list of people that have hurt you, that have disappointed you, that have injured you in some way. You look at that list and it's, sometimes it is really hard to pray God's blessing on them. It's an act of the will. You just say, okay, Jesus, I will pray for them. I don't feel like it, but I will pray your favor on them. And as you do that, day after day, God does a work in your heart. You can actually pray for them and feel compassion, a tenderness that wasn't there before, something given to you by the Lord. We are called to bless. Peter says, to this you were called, to bless so that we might obtain a blessing. Amen. Let's live that way in 2018. We're going to take a a time just for silent prayer. I'm going to ask you just to respond to a couple of questions before the Lord. Lord, who would you have me forgive? Lord, who do you want me to bless? Lord, what what do you want me to leave behind and move on from? Jesus, some of this we don't do naturally. It's really hard sometimes to forgive, to extend grace, to bless those that have hurt us, but it is what you call us to. And so if you've called us to it,
We believe that you'll give us the strength and the power to do it as we entrust ourselves to you. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you're present by your spirit in our lives individually here among us. Thank you that we can enter 2018 knowing that you want us to walk free. You don't want us to stay stuck, bound by things that have happened in our lives in the past. Our spiritual enemy, the devil, would have us stay there, be tied to the past, be inhibited by the past, be paralyzed by the past. Lord, thank you that you're calling us to more. Thank you that you're inviting us to know you even better. Thank you that you're inviting us to love you and to love the people that you've put in our lives. Thank you that you're present by your spirit to create in us hearts of compassion, a tenderheartedness, a sympathy, a like-mindedness a love that only you can give. So Lord, we thank you. Thank you that we can enter this year with hope. And I pray over my brothers and sisters the blessing that Aaron prayed over the people of Israel. Lord, may you bless them and keep them. May you make your face to shine upon them and may you be gracious to them, Lord. May you lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great 2018.